some of the thoughts that have come to mind as we have been in the process of, of this book, beginning this book, is, is where the church is today. Some of the things that I have personally, as a pastor, I've, 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 I've done this long enough, I can kind of tell what the climate is. Jesus said, you know, you know how to figure out what the weather's going to be like, you know, if the sky is red at night or it's red in the morning. And, and I have a feeling that we're living in a day and age where the church is, is not praying like it used to. The church is not honoring, revering, and, and hungering for God's word like it used to. As I had said last week, back in the early days, back when revival hit Las Vegas in the 80s, you'd go to Marie Callender's on a Wednesday night. First off, the Wednesday night service was packed. And you would go to uh, Marie Callender's on, on Wednesday night in Vegas. And it looked like you'd gone into a church. Every table just about had Bibles, had people talking about God's word, sharing about God's word. Uh, things were, were exciting, things were fresh, and things were new. And then as time goes on, one has tendency to kind of uh, lose that momentum. And as I was reading Jude and, and thinking about the, the, the facts that brought about this letter, the same kind of concern, I believe, was taking place then, and I believe that it's relevant to today as well. Uh, that there is a, 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 a diminishing, if you will, of the seriousness of the things of God. Uh, we need to be a praying church. If we're not a praying church, then we're just, we may as well just, you know, just serve coffee and just have a good time and call this a nice social club. Because this is the body of Christ. And in order to be the body of Christ, one needs to understand the necessity of, of constant intimacy, praying without ceasing, seeing God through every situation. I, I don't want to point her out to make her feel awkward, but my sister, whose husband went home to be with the Lord today. How many people look for excuses not to come to church on Sundays? Anything. Well, my dog got out. Well, and her husband goes home to be with the Lord today, and she comes to church. Because, see, this is, where, this is where you find the unity that comes from the body of Christ. And this is where you find the synergy, if I may use that word, that's greater than the sum total of its parts, that we have the ability to encourage each other, to pray with each other. This is where we can worship God. This is where we can calibrate our thoughts. This is where we can calibrate our perspectives with the things that God would have us to be focusing on. So when we go out into this world, the cares and concerns that come our way, that try to buffet us, the difficulties that challenge us are met head on with the full armor of God that we have the shield of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But because we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we can have a perspective that allows us to be able to navigate this life in a manner that this world would look at you, look at me, look at us, and say, you know, I want what they have. I've tried it all. I've tried fame. I've tried fortune. I've tried sex, drugs, rock and roll, heroin, Hershey bars. I try it all trying to find some kind of, of gratification. And these people over here 
for some reason are walking on sunshine. Yeah, yeah. There, there's something that's taking place in their life that God has done for them. And what Jude is communicating, and I believe that is absolutely vital that we understand this. We're moving into the book of Revelation. We are needing to be understanding of who our God is. There needs to be a calibration. There needs to be a, a perspective adjustment. And what was taking place when Jude was writing this letter was the fact that there were people that had come into the church and they had crept in unnoticed. And as I was reading this and I'm pondering this, and I'm sitting at my desk and I'm going, what is it about this? What it is about this? They were unnoticed. Well, truly, we can, we can put the, the, the entire blame on these people. They came in and they were kind of like undercover agents and they were really looking to create division and really looking to create aberrant theology and to do all of these. But how did they come in unnoticed? I pray that you would be able to look at somebody and not to judge them, not for the sake of judging them, but to look and to meet somebody and go, is this person really walking with the Lord? They, they got the great Bible, man. Check out the bumper stickers on their car. Look at that. These guys got to be Christians. But you talk to them, and there's just some subtleties that start to indicate that perhaps they are missing what is absolutely vital in a walk with Jesus Christ, and that's the born-again experience. I shared this with the youth the other night. I cannot get it out of my mind. It seems to be where I'm fixated at this time. Lest a man be born again, he cannot see. Okay, take that word, exegeta, look into the Greek, and that see means more than just experience the streets of gold. He cannot comprehend. He cannot understand. He cannot grasp what it means to be a Christian, what it means to lead a crucified life in Christ, what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what it means to say that all things work together for the good for those who love the Lord. What it means, those things can only be comprehended, brought into focus through this amazing telescope or microscope, depending on which direction you're looking, can only be brought into focus through the Holy Spirit through a life that is yielded to God. And where there is duplicitous type of thinking, one will find that, that there is chaos because a double-minded man, the Bible says, is unstable in all of his ways. And what Jude is dealing with right here is communicating to people that they would not be double-minded because of the consequences of double-minded thinking and the examples that he is going to use. If you think we're going to get through this thing today, you can already tell by my introduction, we're not. We're only, we're only going to make it through about verse 7. I don't want to speed through this. I've changed my mind. I want us to stop, and I want us to savor, and I want us to digest, if you will, the truths that God would have us to focus on, because I believe... And it's not that I'm some great, insightful prophet. No, I'm not. You look at the word of God. You look at where we are in this country today. You look at the challenges that are going around the world. You look at the difficulties in the Middle East. I believe we are in the last days, and we are in situations where we need to be about our Father's business, thinking more about the things of God, delving into the truths that would give us strength, undergird us to be able to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy, more so than quit grabbing my phone 
Okay, yeah, I need to study. Let's see. Hey, Google, Google, when, uh, when was Jude written? Jude was written in approximately 85 uh, AD. Thanks, Google. I studied. What? We've got information at our fingertips, and we do not have to study anything. Consequently, we turn into parrots. We don't turn into people who have a, a, a scholastic intellectual grasp of the things of God, and that then is supported by the truth of the Holy Spirit. And I want that for this church, because a church that's not praying, a church that does not revere the word of God, I don't want to go to. And I'm the pastor. It's like you guys show up on some Sunday. It's like, where's Biggs? He went to another church. <laughs> I want us to be able to grow in the things of the Lord. And the only way that that growth can come about is by each one of us, the synergy of the body of Christ being based upon the, the fear of God. Not that it's a, oh, a fear of trepidation. Certainly the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, but it's a fear that comes about by, by you and me talking about the grace of God, the grace of God. I was sharing that with this morning. The grace of God? You know, we can't even grasp the magnitude of that word. When we get to heaven and we see God and we see angels flying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Oh, now I understand grace. And we will realize the power, the magnitude, the comfort, the divine provision through the fact that we are saved by grace. It's interesting because this grace is called charis. It's a gift. And when you actually delve into the definition of this gift, it's a gift that God is excited to bestow upon you and me. And, and I don't mean to sound irreverent or silly or anything, but it's almost as if God's saying, hey, look, I've got this for you. Quick, to open up this gift. I've got this great gift. I've got this grace. This grace is going to protect you. This grace is going to give you the opportunity to come before me and to know that you are saved by my provision, by my plan, and now you can boldly approach my throne. You needn't be fearful. These are perspectives that only the Holy Spirit can instill in the lives of individuals who are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Jude recognized that. We had somewhat of an extensive intro last week. We made it to verse 5 in Jude. Uh, and so uh, what's the expression? One step forward, two steps back. So we're going to pick up in verse 3. And, uh, but uh, Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for the joy that you give us. We thank you that we can sing songs to you. We thank you that we can laugh with each other, Father. We thank you that we can, can have a peace that surpasses our understanding when we utilize the truths of your word and we lift up our prayers and supplications to you with thanksgiving, that we can know that you hear our prayers, that we've taken them to the highest, highest authority. Please be our teacher today. Speak to your church, not just in this building, but around this community, around this country, Lord God, around the world. Don't let our arrogance, don't let our preconceived notions ever interfere with the way you would have us as little children to sit at your feet and to learn from you. Be blessed this day, Father. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin in Jude.
Verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, that salvation that we're, we all share in, we've all experienced this, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to you. And as I'm reading this and I'm studying and I'm, I'm and, and, and you guys, I've got the, the greatest job on the planet and I pray that you understand that. Read your Bibles, read your Bibles. And when you're reading that, think about, think about it. And I'm a little strange. You don't have to be as weird as I am. But imagine what it would be like to be reading a Bible and you've got just a, 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 an oil lamp putting out the light. What it would smell like as the oil lamp would be uh, illuminating the room. What it might be like, and to be reading this word of God. This is a letter that came from a brother. You're not that far out of, out of, the, out of the mix. You know that Jesus was crucified. You know that, that he over 500 of his believers saw him after he was raised from the dead. You know that there were those who, who watched him uh, after he had, had, had been here and then ascended into the heavens. They saw this happen. This was very real. The persecution now that's taking place from Rome because this church had been growing entirely too dependent upon Jesus and less dependent upon Caesar. All of these issues that are taking place. And for some reason, Jude felt it necessary to write to them, to tell them that they needed to be uh, contending for the faith which was once and for all delivered to them. There was something going on at the time of this epistle uh, that caused Jude to feel the need. And this is what I thought about. Caused Jude uh, to feel the need to change the original direction of his letter and instead address some concerns that the Holy Spirit had put on his heart. Jude was intending to write an epistle regarding the salvation that all believers have in common when the Holy Spirit stopped him in his tracks, if I may use that expression, and redirected him to warn the readers about something. Redirected him. And I tell you what, if we think about that at times, we can walk up to somebody, we can be in the middle of a conversation, and maybe the Holy Spirit would then say, you know, it's nice to talk about the Super Bowl. It's nice to talk about the playoff football game this Saturday, this, this afternoon. Don't be thinking too much about that. And, but the most important thing is, is you know what your brother's going through right now. You know what your sister's going through right now. I think I'd rather have you address that. You can just have nice fellowship and talk about everything is beautiful. Or you can talk about pressing matters that will help this individual to be able to find strength and courage to press on through this day. And that's what happened with Jude. He wanted to write a nice letter, a nice letter. But instead, he was stopped. The Holy Spirit says, no, I need you to address something to this church, to these readers, I should say. Because certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness. That's the theme. They're turning the grace of God 
into lewdness. Lewdness could be defined as, as, as licentiousness. Lewdness could be defined as some type of, of, of immoral, sexual, extreme. It, it was an excuse who turn the grace of God into an excuse to exercise activities that are contrary to the heart of God. And they end up denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you, I don't know what your Bibles say. Some of your Bibles might say master. Some of your Bibles might go straight into and say uh, the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know that when we finish Jude, we're not going into Revelation that week, the week after we finish Jude. We're going to look at the Trinity because this is a beautiful, beautiful picture of the Trinity of God starting right here in this book of Jude. In this little book, 400 and 465 words, I believe, in, in this book. And, but yet what he covers is powerful. And I don't think that it's just happenstance or coincidence. We are getting ready to move into the book of Revelation. And it is absolutely vital that we start to have a clarity. When we went through the epistles of John, now we're in Jude, who Jesus is because Revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is preparing us to move in to that book. And so at this time, I want us to understand that there's a beautiful picture of the Trinity here, and we will get to it. I'll just touch on it a little bit here. But for instance, you can read this ungodly man who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord. That word, Lord, you would, um, you would think that it's talking about, about Jesus particularly, but the, Lord is called, the word is called despot, despotus, and it's where we get the word despot. And it has to do with a powerful ruler. And then it says the only despot, the only powerful ruler. And then in the translation, the King James, the new King James, the word God is inserted in there. And I don't know what translations, if you have an ESV or if you're looking at a New American Standard, you'll see what I'm talking about. And then it talks about our Lord, which is Kyrios, which still means powerful leader, and then Jesus Christ. And then when you get to the next verse, there's going to be an amazing, an amazing focus on, on the Trinity, on Jesus Christ and the way the wording is, is brought forth, that, that you'll see that. And, and I will go over for it in depth, but we're not going to do that now. I'm already getting off track from what we said we were going to do. I wanted to plow through this. I can't do that. I can't stop now and do a teaching on the Trinity. But I can tell you that we will, as soon as we finish this, we will go back to these verses and touch on them. Because down towards the end of the book, there's another reference, if you will, uh, that's beautiful pictures of the Trinity. Back to the ranch. So certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. They're ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we're talking about here, and, and I've got a buddy, I, I digress a little bit, but I've got a, a pastor friend whom I just love in this town. He is my buddy. Uh, we, we are on totally opposite uh, sides of the fence on various theological issues. And if you want to be a Calvinist, you can be a Calvinist. That's fine. I don't care. I love you. Fine, be a Calvinist. He's a Calvinist. I'm not particular. I'm kind of a Calvinist. 
I have some Calvinistic views and some Arminian views. He's a, a post-tribber. I'm a pre-tribber. We, you know, he says tomato, I say tomato, you know, but, but I love this man. I love this man. And he is, is a dear friend of mine. And, and so he tells me sometimes that I need to tone it down a little bit and that I need to speak to you guys like you're in fourth grade. And yeah, you guys don't want me to do that, do you? No, there you go. So what I'm going to toss at you, what we're discussing at this point, these ungodly men who have crept in unnoticed, keep in the back of your mind, why did they get in there unnoticed? But he goes on to say that they had taken the grace of God, the grace that allows us this right standing, this faithfulness, this comfort, this support, this joy, this confidence that we can boldly approach the throne of a holy God because we're saved by grace. It's a gift. It's a pass, if you will, not a pass to get away with anything, but it's a ticket, I should say, that allows you access to God. And what we're talking about is a word called antinomianism. Interestingly enough, I actually heard that a bazillion years ago in a sociology class, and it wasn't a, a, a I didn't realize the Christian connotation to the definition. It was just a, a word that came across of, a, of a, one who rejects socially uh, established morals that kind of operates in their own realm. But antinomianism is an erroneous teaching espousing the lie that since one is saved by grace, you tracking with me? Since one is saved by grace and their sins are no longer held against them, I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they can sin without consequence. Oh, God's grace. How many times have you heard you said, hey, dude, you know, you're going to have to change here. You're going to have to stop. Well, I guess I'm just going to have to throw myself on the grace of God. You know, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what grace is for. Charles Spurgeon said that the grace of God should bring about the greatest type of obedience that anybody, anybody could imagine because it's valued. It's appreciated. The grace of God. It's not a license. It's not that, well, I don't really have to change my life. I really don't have to. I know I'm living with my girlfriend, but God understands. I know that I still, you know, do this once in a while, but God understands. I know that I have these issues, but God, I know I'm going to divorce my spouse, but God understands. I know. No, 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 no. That's not the way it works. But we end up creating God in our own image when we take his word and we we apply our views to it and instead of letting God apply his views to our life. And these men that were doing this would fall under the category of what we would say uh, antinomians. They were taking the grace of God and they were using it as license to not, to not adhere to his, his directives. Paul addressed the heresy in Romans 6.1. Many of you know it. What, shall then sh what then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? I mean, and I love it when Paul says, come on, certainly not. Well, there were people in the church who were having no trouble continuing to live in a lifestyle that was contrary to the holiness God called his children to practice. They weren't, they weren't having any trouble. They were doing just fine. And how does something like this happen? That's a question. 
your studies. How does this happen? Well, we hear it today. And interestingly enough, little sidebar, another sidebar. Uh, I was looking uh, at a word, uh, uh, eisegesis and exegesis. Those are some uh, terms that have to do with you. When you exegete something from the scripture, say exegete. That means what exits from the scripture, if you will, is that which you would take to heart. To eisegete something is what the vast majority of the televangelists feel good, touchy-feeling, God loves you. They are taking a scripture and they are then applying it from their perspective into the things of God. You should not eisegete scripture. It needs to be an exegetic research and study. That you hear things like, well, God wants to bless you. God is a God of love. God understands. God knows that you're doing the best you can, brother. You're doing the best you can. And, and one of these days, you know, you just keep seeking first God and, and doing the best you can. And, and these issues that might be upsetting him, he understands how tough it is out there. He understands. Don't you worry. Hang in there, Peppy. You're going to go to heaven. <laughs> And how does, how does that communicate God's character? Now, here's something that's powerful. People will study various subjects of Scripture, like grace, the love of God, with a preconceived viewpoint. And what happens is that they will arrive at a definition of God's love. And then they will allow their definition of God's love to redefine what the Bible actually says, which is an absolute violation of Scripture. We are to use the Scriptures to define love. We are never to use our feel-good definition of love to define the Scriptures. That's the way it has to be. And there's peace there. It's like I, I look around the room. It's like everybody's going, okay, where are you going with this? I, you know, I would like to dance and sing for you today. You know, Let's all have a good time and just talk. About, but this is something that the church has to hear. We, I believe, need to be exhorted. And I'm, don't answer. Don't raise your hand. Do you pray? Do you really pray? Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. Yay, God. Do you, God, help me get over the hill. Don't let me die on the Widowmaker Road going to Vegas. Do, do, we, do, we, do we spend time with God? Do you, do I, do we spend enough time with the Lord in prayer that if we were married to Him, we would have a relationship? Because I have to stand convicted a lot of times my prayers are just these parachute prayers. Oh, God, help. Oh, God, help. Do I sit down and just say, Papa, I, I'd like to talk to my buddy Sam. Sam and I need to go for a hike. I'd like to touch base with my buddy Bob and just talk about life. But they're busy, you know. God, can we just talk? Can, can I just spend time with my Savior, with the Lord who's purchased me? who's taken my sins and cast them as far as the east is and the west. It's promised he'll never leave me or forsake me. 
who's promised to finish the work. That he, can we just talk, Lord? And then when the favorite person on the planet shows up, my wife or my daughter, and says, hey, Dad, you want to talk? Hey, honey, you want to talk? Just a second, I'm talking to God. I'll be right with you. I'm talking to God. Those are the things that the Lord would have us to, to keep in mind. And, and, and we get these preconceived notions because we tell God what he's supposed to do, how he's supposed to do it. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that he who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Amen? Yeah, that sounds good. Let's just stop there. God just love. He's just a God of love. Here comes the but. <laughs> but we also see that 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 tells us but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in most of your conduct. Oh, did I say most? I'm, I'm sorry, in all of your conduct. All of your conduct. Why? Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Okay, 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 okay. How holy is that? I mean, really, I'm here at church, aren't I? You know, there's a good chance if the pastor keeps talking, I'll miss the kickoff this afternoon after I go to the buffet, you know. How holy am I supposed to be? Well, Habakkuk 1.13 tells us, God, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Guys, that's a powerful scripture. That is a powerful scripture. John Calvin, talking about Calvinism. By the way, Calvin didn't know he was a Calvinist. Just a little thought there. But anyway, John Calvin tells us that after having been called by God, we not ought to glory carelessly in his grace, but on the contrary, to walk watchfully in his fear. For if any trifles thus with God, the contempt of his grace will not go unpunished. That we would not take lightly the grace of God. So there was a truth that at one time was taken very seriously by these readers. Very seriously by the readers that Jude was writing to. And he spoke to them as a pastor, if you will, in exhorting them to be cautious because of these men that had come in. But at the same time, they had to be reminded of something that they once knew. These men had crept in unnoticed, exchanging the grace of God for license to practice lewdness. And I love it because the way that reads, they exchanged the grace of God to practice lewdness. Well, that's not what it says. They had exchanged the grace of God and the, and the use that it was intended for that we would be able to boldly approach God knowing that we're saved by grace through faith and maybe you had a funky thought, maybe you had a bad moment behind the steering wheel when you ran into somebody that doesn't know how to navigate a traffic circle or something weird and, and maybe something, and, and you go, oh God, you know, help me, I'm, I'm, I'm far from, from Jesus right now. But you've got the grace, and that gives you a confidence, and that gives you a hope. 
But these men had managed somehow to creep in unnoticed, exchanging the grace of God for license to practice lewdness. And Jude felt the need to remind the readers of something that they once, they once knew. That's powerful to me. They once knew that Ephesians 5, 1 through 7 says, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting of the saints. You call yourself a Christian? Don't even talk about stuff like that. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, no unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then, and, and, and it's almost as if Paul says, hey, now let me drive this home. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, your sons and daughters of righteousness. But therefore, do not be partakers with them. What does that mean? What does that mean? 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Hang out with the wrong people, you're going to start looking like them instead of like the, your brothers and sisters. Galatians 5.9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leaven in this context is seen as sin and compromise. One of the things that I'm so cautious of in, in church, because I've, I've had to learn the hard way, is that we would not, we would not allow any, any coarse jesting. I'm not a prude. I'm not, I'm not, and I jokingly say, I love to dance. I, here's the question, can Christians dance? Well, some can, some can't. But, but <laughs> I probably fall within the ladder. I tell you, she would embarrass, my wife could bust a move, man. She's got more soul than she can control my daughter. And I love it. I love living with women because a song comes on around in the kitchen all of a sudden, you know, and I've got this clunky Bruce, Bruce Springsteen kind of, you know, and, and my wife and my daughter are just like, they're, they're in the pocket, you know. I want to dance. I want to have fun. I want the joy of the Lord to be your strength. I want you to know the truth that set you free, but never, never at the, at the cost of compromising the holiness of God. And I won't tolerate it. I don't mean to sound like a tough guy. I'm not. What am I going to do about it? I'll send, sick somebody on them, but, I, but I'm not going to. Coarse jesting. I don't like words. There are certain words that we as leadership cannot, cannot, cannot use. Because I believe with all my heart, I'm preaching just a little bit right now. Bear with me. I'm a preacher. One of the things that that which we do in moderation, that which we do in moderation, our children or the congregants will do in excess. If I sit here and I go, yeah, I'm going to check that out or something, anything like that at all, 
As soon as someone's not around the pastor, they're going to take that further. And these are things that we have got to protect the church. We protect our youth group. We protect our Sunday school. If I ever hear anybody in Sunday school using words that, that, I don't, that we were not allowed to use in my home, then we will truth. And I tell you what, we had some, you know, we had, we had, the, you know, we had the H word and we had the, the, the S word. Those are words you couldn't use in the big home. H stood for hate. And S stood for stupid. You could not use those words in our family. Absolutely not. It was to edify. It was to build up. And it's absolutely vital that when we walk into an environment, whether you're sitting next to your husband or you're sitting next to a stranger, you are here to edify, to encourage, to make this environment as conducive as possible for the growth and the things of the Lord, not to dummy down the moment to make somebody who's in desperate need to repent and turn to God and, and call upon his name to think, ah, I'm cool for another day. Do you hear what they were talking about over there? No, that we would never do that we would understand the seriousness of what we're in. For these men to have been able to come into the church unnoticed means that they might have fit right in. I don't know, but I just thought, how could it happen? God's given us the, the, the gift of discernment. God's given us the opportunity to say, man, this cat's got, you know, guy's sporting $150 leather-bound Bible. Check it out. Have you seen all the bumper stickers on the back of his car out there? Guy's got to be a Christian. But something is said, something happens, and it just doesn't ring true. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, verse 5, though you once knew this, you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their abode he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth for what purpose? As an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. These are examples. These are are. are typologies, if you will, that are being used from the scripture to indicate how displeasing a lack of faith is to God because a lack of faith will bring you and me and us to a place where we are in fear, where we are overcome by anger, where our moment has the ability to get us up against the ropes, 
we forget that we can do all things through Christ, and we end up saying, I can't do all things through Christ. And God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge that Christ, that Christ Jesus, who took the, 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 the challenge out of the issue because he called us by his own glory and excellence, the scripture says, instead of our own, to take these gifts and to say, ah, yeah, but I don't think that applies to me. I don't think I can be faithful in this. I don't think I can be strong through this. I don't think I can be bold through this. God doesn't like to hear that, and I, I, will, I will kind of bring this down on my terms, take it or leave it, but that's insulting to God. That's insulting to God. We go through challenges, and we go through difficulties, and we cry, and we, and we experience heartache, and we experience pain, and we experience all the things the, that love brings into our lives. You realize the vulnerability that love brings? It'd be so nice to... You know, just like to go out and cut the soles off my shoes and to live in a tree and learn to play the flute. You know, just everybody just leave me alone. But to interact with people requires love, requires a vulnerability in order to be a friend, in order to be a brother. And God has given us everything we need to be able to navigate this life, yet to be able to not succumb to the challenges that befall us. Because we have the Spirit of God in us, and greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. But I want to remind you, though, you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, after saving the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So we look at this. So the first thing that Jude does is he brings to remembrance to the people that were delivered by God. The Israelites, they'd been in bondage for 400 years. Think of what that would have been like to be in slavery, in bondage, having to do the bidding, having to do the work of Pharaoh, building these great monuments, these great tributes, to pay, having to, to slave for him. 400 years, and they cried out to the Lord, spare us, God, help us with this. They didn't know how they were going to do it. How are you going to come up against Pharaoh's army? How are you going to be able to get out from under the thumb of this powerful, powerful source, the Egyptians? So what does the Lord do? He raises up a deliverer, a Messiah, if you will. He raises up Moses. And God brought these plagues against Egypt. And those plagues eventually caused Pharaoh to set the Lord's people free. And I love it because I'm just enough of a, of a guy to enjoy the fact. Do you realize that almost a million people were freed? These people that were, that were keeping Egypt running, really, doing all of the labor, all of the hard work without firing a shot. There was not a shot fired. God doesn't need our AR-15s and AK-47s and our 9 millimeters and our whatever it might be. There was not a shot fired. God could handle this. So he brings these plagues, and eventually the people were released. They see this happen. They see the Passover. They put the blood on the store, on the, on the, on the door fronts. 
As the spirit of death moves through the, the town, they were passed over, thus the Passover celebration. Then they find themselves heading towards the Red Sea, and they've not been out of Egypt a week, if even that long. And all of a sudden, they look over and they see the Egyptian army coming towards them. And immediately, oh, what are we going to They forgot about everything so quickly that it had already taken place. What are we going to do? And the next thing they know, God parts the water, parts the water, delivers them out of there. Then they get into the promised land. They are right by, they are at Kadesh Barnea, right on the threshold of the promised land. And so what do they do? They send out 12 spies. Go check out the land. Go check out the territory. See what it's like. Sent out 12 spies. The guys come back and they go, man, you would not believe this place. Talk about beautiful. I mean, what a place to raise kids. What a place to grow our crops. The soil's fertile. It's beautiful. They've got grapes the size of basketballs. They had basketballs back then. Grapes the size of coconuts. Anyway, but they look at, look at what they had. It's great. And, and it's like, well, hey, let's go for it. Eh, but there's one problem. There's giants in the land. What? Now, there's giants in the land. I mean, thousands of them. We're like grasshoppers to these guys. And Caleb and Joshua go, wait a minute. Look what God's done. Are you actually going to forget about who God is now because of these so-called giants in the land? The people chose to listen to the ten who did not have the faith, who did not have the belief. A choice that caused them to miss out and to find themselves wandering in the desert for 40 years. Numbers 14, 22 through 23 says, Surely all men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test. What did he just say? Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test. These ten times, and they've not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. Without faith, it is what? Impossible to do what? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We might try. We might go feed people. We might do all kinds of great things. But without faith, it's impossible to please God because we are saved by grace through faith, confidence, trust in what He has done. Faith comes by and hearing by the, the Word of God. So being students, we should understand if we have the need for this faith, we should be reading God's Word so when the enemy comes and tries to dance with us, we've got some some ammo in our in our gun. We've got the scriptures to, to, to speak that just as Jesus showed us when he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And the enemy came to him at the end of that time and says, hey, you're hungry, aren't you, pal? Look at all these rocks. Oh, imagine that's hot bread. And I'll throw in some butter and some honey too if you want. Just If you will just, just bow down and worship me. Turn one of these stones into, into, into bread. And what does Jesus say? 
Man doesn't live by bread alone. Jesus' focus was on the things of God, not on the moment. Surely all men have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. Consequently, by no means the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall those who spurned it, who spurned me, see it. They're not going to make it in. When God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, they started out so well. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. I believe that's probably Yiddish for, oh, it's a great day. As, they, as they're leaving Israel. I mean, and I can't help but see it. We've all seen it. You can't erase these things. You can't, you know, there's Charlton Heston up there, and there's all the camels, and, and everybody's, we're leaving Israel, we're, or, or Egypt, and, and, and dun, 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 Cecil B. DeMille's got this great music playing, and they're finally leaving, leaving Egypt. They're finally getting out of there. And they started out so well. They started out so well, so excited. They made it to the Red Sea before they panicked. And eventually they forgot. They completely forgot about the miraculous hand of God that had delivered them from Egypt. That we can never forget about the miraculous hand of God that delivered us from, from our lives prior to coming to know Jesus Christ. He saved you. He saved me. He was patient with, with us. He went the extra mile. He turned the other cheek so many times. And then when challenges become overwhelming, what do we do? We, 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 we focus on ourselves. We focus, God can't pull this off. God can't bring me any joy. God can't make this. You maybe want to take that up with God and be reminded as to what it is that he did that brought you and me and all of us to where we are today. We serve a loving God that wants none to perish. And he said, listen to me. You have everything you need for life and godliness through my son. Everything, everything, not almost, but everything. But what happened? They'd forgotten the miracles. They'd forgotten God's faithfulness. Hebrews 3, 17, 18 tells us, now with whom he was angry for 40 years? It's a question. Was it not with those who sinned? And how do they sin? By not trusting God. The trust of God would keep them from sinning. Our trust in God will cause us to go, you know, I don't think I want to go there. And because our sins, if, if you don't mind, our sins are just a symptom of our not trusting God. Our sins are like, you know, I need to do this for the moment. I need to look at that for the moment. I need to respond to this for the moment more than I need to walk by faith and to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. Our sins are just a symptom of us not trusting God. And so when he makes reference, now whom? Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpse fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter the rest, but to those who didn't obey, those who did not trust, those who did not obey. Our trust at times will cause us to have to say no to certain things. Our faith in God will have to tell us, I can't go there. Psalm 95.10 says, For 40 years I was grieved with that generation, 
and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Why would they not enter their, his rest? Because they don't know his ways. They've gone astray in their hearts. The people of Israel, they started out from Egypt so well. They had God's blessings along the way, but they did not endure to the end. They did not endure to the end. And why did they not endure to the end? Why did they not make it to the finish line? Because they did not trust God for the promises of his protection. We have everything we need for life and godliness. He will never leave us or forsake us. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. We're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We are to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. We are to be clad in the full armor of God with the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, our, our loins girded with truth, reproducing truth, if you will, our feet shod with the readiness of the gospel, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, which is the only offensive sword in our arsenal. That we have the sword of the spirit, the word of God that enables us to be able to be victorious. Not perfect, not goody two-shoes, not people who are too cool to dance and too cool to have. No, no, no. You dance and you have fun and you high-five each other and you remember the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's our joy. The joy that the world would offer us, get out of town. It doesn't do anything. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That's where our comfort is. That's where our hope is. And that's what God had. And what he wants us to understand that the final test, the final test of our Christianity is endurance, is endurance. Those who endure to the end shall be saved. Some start the race really well and they never finish it. Others start the race and they don't even slow down. I knew a person who was a, a sprinter one time, and, and he said that he, he liked to be able, when he'd come out of the blocks, are you ready for this? When he'd come out of the blocks, he wanted to accelerate, still be accelerating when he, when he crossed that finish line, still accelerating, that we would still be accelerating when we cross that finish line, that you've come out of the blocks you're moving towards the things of God, filled with the Spirit, everything you need for life and godliness, a strength, a confidence, a hope, a joy that comes from what the Word of God has taught you and the confirmation that the Holy Spirit has brought home in regards to those truths, and you are running. You are running, as Paul says, seeking the upward prize, forgetting the past, looking ahead to the upward calling of the things of God, and that's how you dance, and that's how you sing. And that's how the joy of the Lord will be your strength. And you and I can high-five each other and remind each other of the faithfulness of God when a sister needs to have a hug. When, when a sister needs to be reminded over here that God's got this. Greater is he that's in you than, than all the red tape that the government would try to throw at you. We need to be a praying people reading God's word, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and encouraging each other as long as it's called today. 
lest our hearts become hardened, messed up by the deceitfulness of sin. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's all stand up. Whoosh, <whistles> whoosh.